This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With just days to go till the election, we have a jam-packed show for you, re-airing our debates of some of the major ballot measures. Let's start with the one to raise the state's minimum wage to $12 an hour from a little over 8 now. Deborah Brown is with the Yes campaign, and Sonia Riggs is against it. She leads the Colorado Restaurant Association, and welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Deborah. briefly, how would the wage increase work? What are the mechanics of it? Yeah, so as you mentioned, it's currently 831, so it'll go up to $9.30 in January of 2017, and then it'll increase by 90 cents until it reaches $12 in 2020. And it'll then be adjusted annually, so the minimum wage keeps up with the cost of living rather than falling behind. All right, so $12 by 2020, and from that point on, cost of living adjustments. Correct. Okay. According to a 2015 report by the U.S. Department of Labor, there were approximately 22,000 people in Colorado making minimum wage. That's less than 1% of everyone in the state who has a job. Given the small number of people it impacts, why do you think passing this amendment is important? So it's really important also to point out the total number of people affected are not just people making the bare minimum wage, but people are making anywhere in that range up to 12 an hour. And that's overall 480,000 hardworking Coloradoans. This is a gradual increase that will give businesses time to adjust. And at the end of the day, when workers have more money in their pockets, especially low-wage workers, they invest that back in the local economy. They don't offshore that money. They don't put it in 401ks. But if you raise the minimum wage, don't prices increase, say, at restaurants or stores? And therefore, someone who earns a higher minimum wage goes to that store and faces higher prices as a result. So most of the data shows that the increase is pretty negligible. On average, a 10% increase in the wage results in less than a 1% increase in restaurant prices. So, for example, in San Francisco, after they raised its minimum wage by 31%, the cost of a $50 meal at a table service restaurant was $1.40 higher. And the cost of a $2 fast food hamburger was 12 cents higher than in neighboring Alameda County, which did not raise the minimum wage. So you don't dispute that prices will increase, but you don't think that it will happen to such an extent as to negate raising the minimum wage? There's no question about it. At the end of the day, workers will end up way better off. Sonia, last week in a visit to Denver, U.S. Labor Secretary Thomas Perez said the Obama administration was fully behind Amendment 70. Governor Hickenlooper supports raising the minimum wage. And an independent poll found 55 percent of voters were in favor of this. What is it that you believe they are missing? Unfortunately, we think it's going to hurt the very same people that it's trying to help. And any job loss we really don't think is acceptable. When you look at places like Washington, D.C. and Seattle, um, Washington, for example, when they raised their minimum wage to ten fifty an hour, the first six months, they saw 1,400 restaurant jobs go away. That doesn't help those people. And like you had mentioned, price increases are another big thing. We surveyed our members about a year ago in a very similar minimum wage increase, and 89% of them said that they would increase prices. Uh, 72% of them said that they would reduce staffing hours, and 71% said they would reduce staffing levels overall. And that is why we're not seeing that those very same people that the proponents are trying to help, we're actually not seeing them be helped in some of these other cities that had already passed the minimum wage. But if some minimum wage increase might lead to higher prices and perhaps some job loss. Are you saying that you should never raise the minimum wage? 
Well, the minimum wage is a starting wage, first of all. It's not meant to support a family of four. It's a, a minimum wage that gives people the opportunity to get their foot in the door with a job, learn valuable skills, and work your way up. And so those folks should just scrape by, you're saying? Well, we're saying that there may be better solutions rather than putting small businesses out of business, um, like the earned income tax credit, like workforce development. We're Right now, we have a program that's in more than 30 high schools around Colorado, and we're teaching those skills to people to give them that opportunity to get their foot in their door and work their way up. And the minimum wage already does increase every year with the Boulder-Denver-Greeley CPI index. Um, it was put in the Constitution in 2006, and every year the minimum wage already increases. So even if this ballot initiative fails, the minimum wage will increase in January 2017. Right. Let's be clear that the current minimum wage does increase with the cost of living. Correct. I mentioned earlier that in our conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper recently, he was leaning towards supporting this. But one reservation he had dealt with the tipped wage. And I'm just wondering if we might explore that for a bit here, Sonia. This is something that restaurants in particular, I think, are concerned about. They are, because under this measure, the tipped wage increases 70% over the next three years and two months. And what's already difficult for restaurants is they have a hard time because oftentimes their servers make more than managers. And now those people getting a 70% increase, it makes it more difficult to pay higher wages to the folks that they call in the back of the house, which are like the cooks and the dishwashers. And and let me me just um, be clear about what the tipped wage is. So obviously, employees who earn tips make a different minimum wage. They make three. $3.02 an hour less than the regular minimum wage. And if they don't make up that money in tips, the employer has to pay them that money themselves. So you're saying that for those workers, this is an even larger increase. So there's not a change to the tip credit, which means the tipped wage itself is increasing. Um, It'll go up to $8.98 an hour. Right now it's $5.29. It'll go up to $8.98 an hour. Do you think that if there had been some consideration of the tip credits that the Restaurant Association might have gotten behind this? I don't know that we would have gotten behind it as a supporter, but we probably would have been neutral. Deborah, how do you respond to this notion that the credit for tipped employees is not changing here? So I want to, again, put it in perspective. There are over 50,000 Coloradoans who are working as waiters and waitresses. They make a median wage, including tips, of $9.02 an hour. So I think we have this conception of uh, wait staff that they're uh, making bank, making more than managers, but... In you might terms, picture the fanciest restaurant you go right, to. Right, right. And so it's really important that we are lifting all boats together, including the workers. That's why we have broad support from restaurants across the state. The cost, especially in restaurant industry, is variable. There's a lot of things that impact their costs. And good, smart business owners adjust. Deborah, won't the market take care of this to some extent? That is to say, if there's a lot of competition for workers in a given field then employers are forced to deal with the reality of that and increase their wages. Over the past decade, the actual income of workers has only gone up by 21 percent, but the cost of housing alone has more than doubled. Unfortunately, what's happening right now with the free market is employers that aren't paying their employees enough to get by are forcing us taxpayers to compensate that. And those workers have no choice but to turn to the social safety net. That's not free market. That's corporate welfare. Deborah Brown there with Colorado Business for a fair minimum wage, which is in favor of Amendment 70. We also heard from Sonia Riggs, who's against it. She leads the Colorado Restaurant Association. That's an excerpt of a longer debate, which you can hear in full at cprnews.org. 
After a break, Colorado would ditch Obamacare in favor of its own plan under another measure on the ballot. We'll debate Colorado Care. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The clock is ticking on filling out your ballot. Election Day is almost here. Today, another chance to hear our debates of some of the big statewide ballot measures. Amendment 69 would create Colorado Care, a statewide universal health care system. Taxes would increase to fund it, and private insurance as we know it would largely go away. We debated this initiative with T.R. Reed, who leads the campaign in favor, and Cody Belsley, a consultant with the largest opposition group. And welcome to both. Thank you. Hi, Ryan. I want to start with how this could affect patients. So right now, the healthcare system can be confusing. You know, there's getting referrals, making sure procedures and medications are covered, not knowing exactly how much you'll pay for an office visit or a trip to the emergency room. So, TR, I wonder how briefly this would change a healthcare consumer's life. Well, our proposition says, shall Coloradans pay $25 billion dollars? to create a healthcare system based in Colorado, run in Colorado, that covers everybody and gives you choice of any doctor, any chiropractor, any pediatrician. Basically, it's like Medicare for everybody in Colorado. That's what you get if you vote yes. If you vote no, then you're voting for this proposition. Shall Coloradans pay $36 billion to out-of-state insurance companies that dictate which doctors we can see, restrict the treatments and drugs your doctors can use, and raise our prices 20% a year. In a few of the finer points, you would eliminate deductibles, yes. correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there wouldn't be co-pays for primary and preventive care. Right. And yet, Coloradans recently went through an overhaul of a different kind. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is supposed to address a lot of the same challenges that you want to address here. Still a relatively new law. Democrats are open to improving it, changing it. Why not continue to work down that path? Uh, There are two problems with Obamacare. It did expand coverage significantly, but it still leaves tens of millions of Americans with no health insurance. 360,000 people in Colorado have no health insurance under Obamacare. And guess what, Ryan? Those people still get sick. And then they go to the emergency room for their doctor's office, the most expensive possible place to get health care. And since they're uninsured, we all pay for them. Under Colorado Care, everybody pays for health insurance and everybody's covered. Cody, I'd like your response, but help us understand where you're coming from first. I assume you are not opposed to the idea that everyone should have health insurance. I'm a progressive advocate. I've spent the last 12 years of my career working on access to health care, particularly for low-income and underserved populations. And I think that the general goal and objective behind Amendment 69 is a good one. However, the details are critically important and critically flawed. Give us a few examples. This would create a brand new, untested healthcare system. It takes a huge risk with something that's critically important to each of us as Coloradans, and that's our healthcare system. And it takes this brand new, never before tested system and it locks it into our state's constitution, making it virtually impossible to revise or change moving forward. While it locks into the Constitution a framework for this new system, it leaves critically important questions unanswered, questions about what our benefits will be, what our access to services will be, and ultimately what this new system will cost. It would give Colorado the highest income tax rate in the country. 
It would levy new taxes on all Coloradans uh, through both a payroll tax but also an income tax on non-payroll income. From our perspective, Amendment 69, while underpinned by good intentions, is simply too risky, too uncertain, and too unaffordable. Let's do focus on the finances because that's critical here. The first line, as it appears on the ballot, is, shall state taxes be increased $25 billion annually? And uh, indeed, the No campaign has hammered this point in ads. Sometimes too big can be bad. Take Amendment 69, for example. It would raise our taxes by $25 billion a year. That's the largest tax increase in state history. It would double the size of state government and create a single program that would be bigger than McDonald's, Starbucks, and Nike. That's the kind of big that just doesn't But Cody, is that a bit dishonest? Because it doesn't acknowledge that people would no longer pay deductibles and in many cases won't pay co-payments. Or health insurance premiums. So the first thing to know is Colorado Care doesn't become the primary source of health coverage for all Coloradans. Senior citizens will continue to receive Medicare. Members of the um, of the military, whether they're active or retired, will continue to get benefits through TRICARE or the VA. Hmm. And nothing in Amendment 69 actually prohibits the continuation of private health insurance. So 20-ish percent of Coloradans at a minimum would not be covered by this system, yet everyone is taxed for the system. Well, T.R., is, so is that true? So if you don't use Colorado Care, you have to pay for it in, in taxes? Well, I'm on Medicare and the VA. That's where I get my health insurance. There's a big exemption for seniors, but above the exemption, you pay. And can I tell you why I like that? I don't have kids in the public schools anymore, and I pay the tax for public schools because I want to live in a state where every kid has an education and a chance to succeed. And in the same way, I will pay some tax, not too much, for Colorado Care because I want to live in a state where everybody who's sick can get health care and has a chance to succeed. That seems fair to me. The Colorado Health Institute did a forecast of Colorado Care TR Reed, and it found that there might be as big as an $8 billion deficit within a decade. The Colorado Health Institute said we will save Coloradans billions of dollars. They said that. And then they said they think we fall short one one hundredth of one percent in the first year and slightly more for years on end. And that's because we disagree with them on how much federal money we're going to get. The federal government is going to pour billions of dollars into this because they're encouraging states to do what we do. All right. Cody Belsley, you've got a broad coalition, and yet much of the money you've raised comes from a few sources. Your campaign has about $4 million behind it, a million from Anthem, based in Ohio, and at least half a million from Kaiser Permanente in California. Colorado Care would no doubt hurt insurance companies, so they'd have a financial stake in defeating it. Are Colorado voters being manipulated into opposing it by companies with a financial stake in the outcome? Not at all. Um, We have no reason to hide who our donors are. We have complied with every um, transparency measure required by the state. More than 1,700 Coloradans and small businesses and organizations like the Colorado Medical Society, Children's Hospital Colorado, the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce have come out against Amendment 69 because they know the risks that it poses to our health care system and our economy. That is Cody Belsley, a consultant with the campaign against Amendment 69, which would create a new taxpayer-funded health care system called Colorado Care. Also, you heard T.R. Reed, longtime journalist and author who now leads the campaign in favor. There's more to this debate, which you can read or listen to at CPRnews.org. Click on the Colorado Voters Guide at the top of the page. (music) 
We will get back to ballot measures in a moment. First, a profile of one of the most competitive races in the country. It's in Colorado's 6th Congressional District, where incumbent Republican Mike Kaufman is fighting on two fronts. He's up against an experienced Democratic opponent, and he's trying to keep his distance from his party's pick for president. CPR's Megan Verlee reports. Mike Kaufman may be in the race of his life, but he's still doing the daily business of being a congressman. Things like touring schools in his district and meeting students. Oh, are you ready for me to read to you? (laughs) Oh, well, that's good. That's good. The kindergartners here at Foundations Academy Charter School live in Brighton, on the northern end of the district. CD6 wraps around the east side of the Denver metro area, covering Aurora and the affluent southeastern suburbs. As Kaufman tells a sixth-grade social studies class. It's a very diverse district. Large immigrant community, large Hispanic community, large... Uh, Asian community. The district's racial and economic diversity is also reflected in its politics. It's split almost evenly between Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated voters. What makes me a better congressman in this because of this district, what makes me a better person, is that it has forced me to reach out. Kaufman wasn't always in this situation. When he was first elected in 2008, this was a safe Republican seat, and he was a standard Republican. He worked to balance the budget and help veterans, and he took a hard line on illegal immigration. But in 2011, redistricting radically redrew the lines. Since then, Kaufman's had to fight off increasingly aggressive Democratic bids for his seat, in part by shifting his views to match the new district's population. He's had a particular change of heart when it comes to young undocumented immigrants. One of the first bills that I introduced when I had the new district and I was able to meet with these children was the ability for them to enlist in the armed forces of the United States and earn a path to citizenship from their military service. Obviously, military is not for everybody, and so I have a much broader view of that today that encompasses education and work history. This effort to adapt to the changed district goes beyond legislation. Kaufman spent years learning Spanish, and he spends his weekends participating in everything from Korean church services to Ethiopian cultural festivals. But Kaufman's opponent, Morgan Carroll, dismisses all that as... Marketing and PR and self-reinvention for political reasons. Carroll has spent the race arguing Kaufman is too far to the right for the district, in part because he backs House Republican leaders who've blocked immigration reform. I caught up with her recently as she was touring Casa de Paz. It's a small Aurora nonprofit that houses people released from the nearby immigration detention center. Uh, How many families do you think you've hosted since you started this? Yeah, so we've, families, we've had about 30. Now guests, we've had over 700. Oh my word. Yes. Carol is no stranger to many CD6 voters. She's represented a chunk of the district for the last eight years as a state senator. She touts accomplishments that range from expanding background checks on gun sales to stronger protections for homeowners. And part of her pitch is that she wants to work across the aisle to get Congress to adopt some of the rules of Colorado's legislature. The fact that our bills get a hearing, at least they get a fair debate, at least they get a vote. Is there a core of people who are interested in reforming the rules of Congress to make the process more representative and fairer to other people. While Kaufman and Carroll are each trying to run on their records, they can't escape the very long shadow of the ongoing presidential election, as local TV viewers know all too well. Congressman Kaufman stands with Donald Trump and will support Trump for president. People ask me, what do you think about Trump? Honestly, I don't care for him much. Kaufman has called for Trump to step aside and says he may not vote for anyone for president this year. 
Those moves could help him hold on to some of the district's moderate voters, but... There is some risk to that because there are clearly Trump supporters in his district. Dick Wadhams is a Republican strategist and former state party chair. He believes Morgan Carroll is the strongest challenger Kaufman's ever faced, meaning this would be a tough race in the best of circumstances. And looking to the future, Wadhams echoes something I've heard some Democrats say privately. If Mike survives this, this this drag that the Trump candidacy appears to be taking on him, it's kind of hard to imagine him ever really be seriously challenged again. If Kaufman wins this year, Democrats may be wary of trying too hard to unseat him in the future. Well, if Morgan Carroll prevails, she'll have demographics on her side going forward. Either way, this is likely a make-or-break election for Colorado's most contested district. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. And Megan joins us now to update a different story about ballot selfies. It's illegal in Colorado to share photos of a completed ballot. And uh, Megan, last week you and I talked about why that law is in place and recent efforts to repeal it. This morning, you're at the federal courthouse in Denver, where two of those legal challenges get a first hearing. Tell us more about what the plaintiffs want. Well, long term, they want this law declared unconstitutional if it's not overturned by the state legislature first. What's going on today, though, is a request for a temporary injunction to uh, keep the powers that be in Colorado from enforcing this law before the upcoming election. Something temporary. Any movement? Any ruling from the judge? No ruling yet. Uh, this hearing is likely to go all day. Um, but one sort of interesting development is that the attorney general and a handful of district attorneys have filed affidavits saying they will not prosecute anyone who posts a ballot selfie in this election unless there is some other evidence of voter malfeasance there, vote buying, voter intimidation. Um, the judge, though, seems to think that just filing affidavits might not be enough for that. She seems to be pushing on whether um, the district attorneys and the attorney general would put out press releases telling the public that it is okay to post these photos. All right. This law that effectively bans ballot selfies is 125 years old. And after we talked about that on air last week, a listener wrote in, Stanley Kern says, cameras in those days were far from simple and not at all something you'd carry with you. So it seems remarkable that they would enact a law against them so long ago. A good point, Stanley. Megan, what's going on here? Well, Stanley caught something that I really should have mentioned in that first uh, conversation, Ryan, which is that this law does not mention cameras specifically. It actually says, and I, I'm quoting it in verbatim here, no voter shall show his ballot after it is prepared for voting to any person in such a way as to reveal its content. So no. you're just not supposed to show your, your filled out ballot to anyone. But I, I called uh, Rick Hassan. He's a nationally recognized election law professor uh, at UC Irvine in California. And he says laws like this just didn't really attract much attention until the rise of social media. I think it's definitely social media that's put a spotlight on it. People want to express their patriotism and political feelings by being able to post that ballot selfie. And I don't think that was really an issue before. Megan, our listener Stanley Kearns also points out that Colorado's law is tied to a much bigger change in how the U.S. conducts elections, and that's the rise of the secret ballot. Yeah, I didn't know anything about this until I started reporting on the current controversy. But until the end of the 19th century, people voted verbally in the United States. They told an election official whom they were supporting. Uh, and the shift to a secret ballot really started after the close and uh, possibly very corrupt 1884 presidential election 
Uh, and Professor Hassan says that it had the effect of immediately reducing voter turnout, which suggests there might have been a lot of fraud going on before. Um, but it also became a means of disenfranchising illiterate voters who, you know, now really couldn't utilize the polling places. Finally, we got a question on Facebook from Andrew Varnell of Boulder, who asked if anyone in Colorado has ever been charged with breaking the law we've been talking about. What do you know about that? Well, that is something that's come up in the case today. Um, and as far as the records show, no one has ever uh, been prosecuted for this. Uh, at least it seems like the, the, the clear records go back at least 25 years, but there's just no evidence that this law has ever been used uh, as, a, as a tool against a, a voter. All right. That is CPR's Megan Verlee, who covers government and politics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, big questions face Colorado voters on their ballots, like whether it should be harder to amend the state's constitution. Amendment 71 would raise the bar, as proponents frame it. The fight has gotten intense. Joining us are Elena Nunez, who opposes this measure. She's with Colorado Common Cause. And Josh Penry is former Republican state Senate minority leader who supports Amendment 71. I asked Penry why it should be harder to amend Colorado's constitution. Well, Colorado has one of the easiest constitutions in the United States to amend, in fact, the easiest. And a constitution exists to protect core rights and core values. And because of the easiness and ease with which you can amend the constitution, it's kind of become this dumping ground for special interest groups to push fads and trends and and gimmicks and all sorts of other things. And so uh, our proposal is a simple one. It just says that it should be more difficult to amend the constitution. If you want to change the state's foundational document, you should demonstrate some support across the state of Colorado. Okay, and explain how that would work and how it differs from the process today of putting an amendment on the ballot. Colorado is one of the few states where, through the citizens' initiatives process, the rules for amending statutes, simple statutes, are the same as amending the the Constitution. And so what happens is groups, all things being equal, cost is the same, effort is the same. They're putting the bulk of the proposals, trying to get them in the Constitution, where something is essentially forever. And so what our proposal does is differentiates constitutional amendments from statutes. The rules for changing statutes won't change. But to change the Constitution, you'd have to collect signatures across the state. There is no such requirement now, and, and groups have a tendency to collect signatures only in Denver and Boulder. Uh, And then the second requirement is that in order for it to be adopted and put in the Constitution, you have to win a 55% of the vote. That is versus a simple majority now. And uh, you talk about gathering signatures before something is put on the ballot all over the state. You'd have to get essentially 2% of registered voters from each of the state's 35 Senate districts. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, These geographic requirements are common in the bulk of other initiative states. And the Senate districts is a jurisdictional boundary that ensures really if you want to change the Constitution, you are going to have to go into the four corners and all the communities of the state and give them some nominal stay in in the process. Okay, the signatures have to do with getting something on the ballot. And then once it's on the ballot and you want to amend the Constitution, it has to have 55 percent support. How did you settle on that number? It's kind of a pragmatic approach. Uh, a number of other states require 60% or, or two-thirds votes. And 55% is sort of, it's not as onerous or difficult as those ones, but it's a higher bar than sort of the simple 50% plus one uh, threshold. You know, Governor Hickenlooper, who's a strong supporter of it, 
puts it well. Like you don't want sort of the fad of the moment to be in the Constitution forever. And this 55% requirement is a way to ensure that these are sort of broader based, broader supported concepts and principles that actually have a place in the Constitution again, rather than a simple fad. All right. That's a picture of what Amendment 71 would do. And let's bring in an opposing voice, Elena Nunez of Colorado Common Cause. You've heard Josh Penry describe the state constitution as a dumping ground, uh, perhaps a place for the fad of the moment. Is that how you see the state constitution? No, I would respectfully disagree. And I think it's important to realize that of the 150 amendments to the Colorado Constitution, fewer than 50 were actually proposed by the voters. The vast majority of changes are proposed by the legislature. So the idea that the Constitution is easy to change or a dumping ground is insulting to the voters of Colorado. I understand that you have concerns around the geographic requirement for signatures. So again, having to gather a certain percentage of signatures from each of the state Senate districts. Yes. And I think it's important to realize that Colorado actually has a difficult process already. If you compare the requirements in Colorado to other states, although the number of signatures vary, in Colorado, because we only have 180 days to gather signatures, it actually is more difficult to gather signatures in Colorado than in the vast majority of other states that allow us to amend the Constitution. You're saying that's because of the time factor? Yes. So the number of signatures you need to get per day is actually harder in Colorado than all but five other states. But then when we actually look at the proposal for Amendment 71, it would allow one Senate district, so about 3% of the population, to block a reform from making the ballot that's supported by the rest of the state. So unlike a lot of other states that have these types of requirements where you need to get some portion of your signatures from some of the districts, this says every single district must meet the threshold. And if you come up short in just one district, you won't make the ballot. I'd like to have you address this supermajority requirement, so 55% of voters having to say yes to a proposed constitutional amendment. What do you make of that figure specifically? Well, it's contrary to the whole notion of majority rule, which is that if, as a state, a majority of us believe something belongs in the Constitution, we should be able to adopt it. And I think, in practice, it will allow well-funded opposition campaigns to block measures that they don't like by driving the vote total down. To the notion of majority rule, I mean, you look how the U.S. Constitution is amended, you know, two-thirds votes of the Congress, refer back to three-fourths of the states. States' constitutions aplenty essentially differentiate because there are two we, – we, we live in a constitutional system and, and, at both the federal level and the state level. There is a role for a constitution and there is a role for the statute. Constitutions are effectively forever. And what's happened, because we create the standard the same, we create uh, an incentive for interest groups to slam things into the Constitution. Elena, one argument against Amendment 71, and you've said something similar, is that it takes we the people out. Is that a, a bit of an extreme argument? Doesn't it just mean that we the people have to meet a slightly higher bar? Well, I think the bar is much more than slightly raised. Having run petition drives in the past, I know that if you have to gather signatures in 35 Senate districts, that's just going to require a lot more time and money and infrastructure. So what we're going to see is if you are an incredibly well-funded interest, you may be able to make Amendment 71 work. But if you are a less well-funded campaign, you're not going to be able to do it. Josh Penry, address that concern for me. So your campaign has benefited from some of the transfer, if you will, from the oil and gas industry. That's given you some deeper pockets. Does this quiet the voice of the little guy or gal? Well, there's a unify, a couple of unifying factors to the opposition. You mentioned the strained bedfellows that are opposing it, groups on the right and the left. All of them have a couple of things in common. Uh, virtually all of them have a Denver or Boulder zip code. 
and virtually all of them uh, run ballot initiatives and use ballot initiatives as organizations to raise money and consolidate political power. And all of them have huge financial backing from large individuals. Um, spare me the notion that you know, the no side is not the establishment. In terms of financial support, we do have support from a lot of industries that have been targeted by some of these more insidious ballot initiatives, uh, the you know, attempts to ban fracking, the healthcare industries, doctors, nurses are big supporters because of the single payer proposals. But you also have groups like the American Association of Retired People, AARP, and small rural chambers of Congress all across the state who are tired of sort of the whims of Denver and Boulder running roughshod over their their priorities and over their values. Josh Penry is a former Republican state Senate minority leader and a supporter of Amendment 71 to raise the bar on constitutional amendments. Elena Nunez opposes 71. She's with Colorado Common Cause. A longer version of this debate is waiting for you in the Colorado Voter Guide at CPRnews.org. In addition to big statewide questions on your ballot, there are likely local issues as well. Denver voters will decide on pot clubs and a cultural tax. Boulderites might pass a soda tax. In Pueblo, they'll consider a half-cent sales tax increase. It started as a way to hire more police officers and to fight crime, but it's grown to include road repairs and some other things the city council tacked on. CPR's Mike Lamp spoke with reporter Peter Roper of the Pueblo Chieftain. One of the things they're trying to do is show the public, yeah, we're responding. We know you'd like some streets fixed. We'll also put in um, money for 24 new police officers. We're also going to build a new fire station and remodel five others. And then there's other things. There's some park money. In a sense, they're hoping to provide a little something for everybody. So originally the plan was to raise money to hire more police officers, and now there's this longer list of things to be funded. Does that broaden support for the measure, or does it maybe dilute it for people for whom increasing the size of the police force is the highest priority? There is some concern that folks say, well, you know, it should be only public safety. But you have a divided city council on that. There are city council members who want to see streets repaired. They want to see some park money. It's a calculated risk. Anytime city council puts a question to the voters. Are there parties that are for or against 2A? There's a very important group of supporters that has organized, sort of a business group. The Greater Public Chamber of Commerce has endorsed 2A. So I think there's some significant support in the business community. I don't think there's any really organized opposition to it. Uh, there was some disgruntlement among some people that the district attorney has asked for a million dollars to help fund his office. And, and there are those on city council who said that's not really our job. That's a county office. But by and large, I think most people see this as a public safety issue and they don't mind the district attorney's money if they thought it would help uh, address some of the crime problems. So I think that's city council's hope is that that's the perception. And And I don't really see anybody in the community that's organizing against it. How long has it been since there's been a sales tax increase? There was a request two years ago uh, organized by the police union and firefighters to target um, a half cent, really just police and firefighter needs. And the community turned that down fairly strongly. Um, There were some other issues with that, that city council objected to it because that money would have forced the city into a situation where it might have had to refund revenues back to taxpayers. But anyway, there were some other issues, but it, it didn't fare too well two years ago. The Pueblo Chieftain's Peter Roper speaking with Mike Lamp. And that's a taste of our coverage of local ballot measures. Much more at CPRnews.org.
Okay, a quick break and then a debate over whether to switch to a presidential primary and include voters who aren't registered as Democrats or Republicans. This is Colorado Matters. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado would dump presidential caucuses in favor of primaries if a measure passes this election. Prop 107 would also open these up to more than a million unaffiliated voters. This is one of several debates we're bringing you today. Curtis Hubbard is spokesman for Let Colorado Vote, which supports the change. And from the opposition, former Republican state senator Ted Harvey of Highlands Ranch. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Colorado had presidential primaries before in 92, 96, and 2000. Scrapped them in favor of caucuses. Curtis, why should Colorado go back? Well, I think one of the critical differences is that in those primaries, unaffiliated voters weren't participating. So that's number one. Number two, all you have to do is think back to March 1st of this year. If you were a Democrat, you were greeted at your caucus by lines out the door, long waits, disorganization. If you were a Republican, you did not have any sort of a presidential preference poll. And if you were one of the one million unaffiliated voters in Colorado, you were locked out altogether. When you add it all up, just 5%, that's 1 in 20 active voters in Colorado participated in the nomination process for the highest office in the land. We think that participation is a better outcome and that if Colorado is participating early in the process, we'll have great influence on the national discussion. Prop 107 brings back presidential primaries, as we said, opens them up to independence. This other proposition, 108, opens down-ballot primaries to unaffiliated voters. Practically, how would an unaffiliated voter participate in a primary? And the primaries would be mail-in, right? Correct. So they would be treated the same way that Republicans and Democrats currently are treated, which means they would be mailed a ballot. That ballot would have, under our measure, both parties' candidates listed and simple instructions to vote in one but not both parties' primaries, doing so could invalidate your vote. They would then pick one party's primary to participate in, return their ballot just like uh, any other voter, and have their say in Colorado's primary elections, which oftentimes are the elections where it really matters. Whether it's Senator Harvey's district or a district like uh, where I live in Boulder, that's when you're really deciding on who's going to serve the citizens of that district. Potential for some confusion there? Wouldn't the ballot be invalidated if you vote for both parties? Well, I don't know about accidentally, but sort of unwittingly? Yeah, it could be. We think Colorado voters are extremely smart. Already, we ask them to use a blue or a black pen. We ask them to fill in a box. We ask them to sign the back of an envelope, to return the ballot to a privacy sleeve, to return it by 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. So we think when we ask them all of that, that they're also smart enough to be able to read that they can vote in one party's primary, but not both. And a critical thing here, Ryan, is Colorado leads the nation in growth of unaffiliated voters. More than a million Colorado voters more than 50% of voters under age 40. It's critical that we get them involved in our election process so that we have candidates who are more responsive to the views of the Colorado electorate. Senator Harvey, I want to understand the nature of your opposition. Is it to primaries? Is it to the fact that these would be primaries open to unaffiliated voters? Predominantly that it's open to unaffiliated voters. These are private entities, these political parties that are choosing their nominees. They're private entities, and we are saying that people who are not a part of this private entity should be allowed to choose the leaders um, of these parties. It's like saying the Mormon church will 
get to choose who is uh, going to be the Pope. We're allowing Bill Belichick to de- decide who's going to be the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. A, re- a religious and a sports metaphor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I just fundamentally believe that that's inappropriate. The Republican Party is the Republican Party. They should be able to decide who is going to be their leader, and same with the Democrat Party. And I suppose you would say what to an unaffiliated voter who wants to participate? It's not that they don't have any Register means. with one of the parties. Register that, with that, that Currently, the way the process is, is if an unaffiliated wants to participate, they can affiliate. What this is saying is we are going to require the counties and the state to pay for ballots going to all unaffiliated voters. And most likely, most unaffiliated voters, history has shown, don't even want to participate in the primary ballot. Is that true? What do you base that on, the idea that a lot of unaffiliated voters don't want to participate? Because they ha- they haven't they haven't well, changed they haven't, their, they haven't changed the their system. P- sure, they can. They can change their party registration and then immediately so, go back. And yeah. there's no history. There's no evidence to the fact that you have a huge mass of unaffiliated voters switching to their party registration Curtis, right of, before the election. Lots of points to have you address here. Sure. First of all, what do you understand the desire to be among unaffiliated so voters? So the, the desire among unaffiliated voters is to participate. Colorado has among How do you the know highest that? participation in general elections in the country. And but, if, if they want to participate, why don't more of them because register? Because you're asking them to be something that they're not. You're asking them to declare to be something that they're not. And fundamentally, Senator, what this is about is this is a taxpayer-financed election. We are not denying unaffiliated voters the ability to vote. They can register to vote in either party that they want to right now on Election Day. That is not denying unaffiliated voters the ability to vote. What we are saying is these are private entities, and these private entities should have the ability to choose their leaders without having undue influence from other people that aren't part of that organization. Curtis just said that the taxpayers are already paying for it. Well, the taxpayers aren't paying for a caucus. The the caucus is already choosing the candidates in many of these situations like that. And we've seen the results of like uh, that. that type of system. And I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt. You went on for a good five minutes and I didn't interrupt you at all. Why would we want to have taxpayer dollars sending ballots to hundreds of thousands of people that don't want to participate in the process? If they wanted to participate in the process, they would right now. And we are now asking the taxpayers through this initiative to pay for ballots going to people who don't want to participate. Right now, under the caucus system for uh, presidential selection, the parties absorb that cost. What you've been saying, Senator Harvey, is that the the state and counties absorb the cost of a mail-in primary. Curtis, uh, briefly, is this worth the expense? Absolutely. And we think when voters approve these measures in November, they will have spoken loud and clear that they value participation that they want to vote, that they want to see people participating in our process without having to declare to be something that they're not, that they think that there's a better way than a caucus system that is only participated in by 5% of active voters in the state, and that we involve the largest segment of the population of the electorate in elections that they pay for. Curtis Hubbard there, spokesman for Let Colorado Vote, which is behind Props 107 and 108 to create primaries here in which unaffiliateds could participate. Former State Senator Ted Harvey, a Republican from Highlands Ranch, opposes the measures. That's part of a longer debate you can hear or read at cprnews.org. Finally, today, in this fractious election season, we searched for and found some hopeful voices. 
There's a catch. They can't vote. But they want you to. Fifth graders from the Boulder Community School of Integrated Studies recently took their message to college students at CU Boulder. All it took was a few wooden signs. Here's CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine. Put your signs down just for a moment so I can talk to you before we move on. Teacher Karen Halverson calls together the smorgasbord of energy and color before her. Backpacks, pigtails, freckles, and cowboy boots. The soon-to-be marchers have just polished off carrots, popcorn, and PB&J. Democracy, it seems, takes a full stomach. There are different ways to express your voice. Maybe you chant together. Maybe, like Noah was suggesting, you say your voice matters. Your vote counts. Suddenly, a phalanx of little humans carrying hand-painted signs joyously disturbs the campus serenity. This is one of the mostly one of the most thrilling heart racing things I've ever done. A college student tells them I'm registered to vote. He gets props for that. The kids are so passionate because they've spent weeks learning about the power of voice in politics, starting with who could vote in early America. Here's Dale Boyer. Only white men with property could vote. And it was just crazy how unjust people were back then to people who were different from them. And that was surprising to me. They learned about the literacy tests used to deny suffrage to blacks, studied how long women had to fight for the vote. vote for like 70 years. More than that, like 300. No, not 300. No, no, not 300, but like 200. Look it up. No, it was like 150 years ago. It was a long time, probably. Yeah. History fresh in their minds. It's actually painful for these kids to think that some people now don't vote. E.J. Johnson. It's torture to to know that the fact that so many people worked so hard to get that right to vote and people aren't voting. We shouldn't just throw it away like it's somebody's old garbage. Their research revealed only 46% of millennials voted in the last presidential election, the lowest voter turnout of any age group. Nyla McGee. So we're telling them, go vote. It's a privilege, not a chore. Choose a leader to guide your country. It's your country. Own it. It's emotional for these kids. But they also have a way of looking at history with clear-headed logic. And it doesn't make sense to Juliana Krigsman. I always like to think of it sort of as reverse. Like, what if black people had all the power and white people were the ones in poverty? Like, would we like to be treated like that? I asked Juliana if studying voting rights has changed her view of the country. She says yes. I didn't realize that our country was so, like, not open-minded. She says she's learned about the massacre of Native Americans, about slavery, and that blacks initially didn't have the right to vote. But she didn't realize the brutality of law enforcement during the Selma, Alabama Voting Rights March. I didn't realize Bloody Sunday. I didn't realize that they would actually go to the extent to try to, like, hurt them, to try to stop them physically. The kids all say voting is a serious responsibility. That's why this question makes them pause. (laughs) Like... It's a hard one. Like, well, you know, it's... Do you think kids should be able to vote? No, I don't I don't think kids should vote until they're at least 13. Lila Newmark. Because they may not know so much about the candidates, and it wouldn't be a very learned vote. 
You know what? I think if you know the word learned at age 10, you should be able to vote. As the march winds down, kids ponder if they've been successful. I heard some college kids saying that not every vote counts, but it's, it's, every vote does that's count. That's not true. It's not true. Yeah. So you heard some of them say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was like, it's like 10% of them. Like, uh-huh. Most of them were like, yeah. Some kids are still at it, giving their best arguments to passersby. It can make a difference in the world. Suddenly, the kids form an arch with their signs that the college students have to walk through. It's one of the most spontaneous, creative displays of civic duty by people who can't vote that I've seen this election. If that doesn't make these college kids vote, I hope they at least get a smile out of it. I'm Jenny Brending, Colorado Public Radio News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can find much more from all of our ballot measure debates and see where candidates stand in the Colorado Voters Guide at cprnews.org. Special thanks to Rachel Estabrook, who produced this ballot special. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.